Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Pana Babunis of Pana Chocolate in Melbourne, Australia. Four years ago, when he launched the Raw Vegan Organic brand, he filled the first few orders himself. He wrapped them and delivered them on the back of his motorbike. Now the business takes over $5 million a year and products are sold in over 3,000 stockists in 24 countries. The company employs over 80 staff and recently opened a London office to service the European market. Parna plans to expand into the US later this year with a vision to be the world's number one raw chocolate company by 2017. In August 2013, the company opened one of the first raw standalone dessert stores in the world that wasn't attached to a cafe. And in April this year, it achieved another major coup, knocking multinational chocolate brand Cadbury off the shelves at Etihad Sports Stadium in Melbourne. And Parner has managed to achieve all this while still owning 100% of his company. In this interview, he talks about why he deliberately avoids placing his products in large supermarket chains at the moment, the importance of aligning with the right partners to grow your business, how the company grew after he was able to give up control and hire other people for their ideas, why you shouldn't sell any or too much of your company in the beginning before it's had a chance to realise its value, and much more. Here's the interview with Pana Babunis from Pana Chocolate. Hello, Pana. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, good morning, and thank you for inviting me to your show. Oh, very excited to, to talk with you today because you've had so much success in a short space of time. Let's start with the question that I start with everybody. Um, what, are your, what is your why? What are your drivers, your reasons for running your vegan business? Um, it, the, the, it's being equal with everybody, being equal with every other being, um, doing something that's sustainable, environmentally friendly, um, and going on a journey that uh, I feel is, is good to Mother Earth and, and uh, is, is, is good for everyone. Fantastic. So it's a real mission-driven business. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and, and a lot of people quite often ask me, um, did something drive you to become vegan or did something drive you to get there? No, not really, just a passion for good food and then, uh, you know, knowledge and uh, understanding where we are as, 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 an, as, world, as a world, um, as people, what we're doing to the environment and all, the, all those combinations sort of have driven me to that. Nothing sort of personally, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good journey. Fantastic. Now, a lot of them, because your products, they're raw, they're vegan, they're organic, they're fair trade. I mean, they're as pretty much as ethical as they can be. What I found a lot of um, vegan uh, business owners in this space have found that the because of the ethics, the products are obviously more expensive than what you, you know traditional ones. How do you deal with the challenge to stay competitive and attract customers? Yeah, look, it definitely poses challenges all the time. Um, we, we believe, look, I'm a strong believer in in what I produce and its value, and um, I sort of put that out there, and um, and I just promote it and uh, play in the right spaces. I 
don't um, I'm not looking for something that I can mass produce because it's it's really you know, priced at a point where I, I need the high turnover. Um, so it was sort of a strategy from the beginning that uh, I need to capture what we need to capture as a business to be able to market the brand, um, grow, pay everyone accordingly, even and even reward myself. So I, I positioned it that way, and I thought, okay, you know, if it means that I'll sell, you know. 500,000 units versus a million units, but um, I, I can manage it at 500 um, with all the expenses. I, I prefer to do that. So sort of a decision, like I said earlier on, not to, to be a volume-based business, but rather to be a business that's based on um, on good customers, good good support uh, from retailers, and um, being able to sort of sustain it and maintain the margins that we require. That's interesting because I think I read an interview with you where you said you deliberately weren't going after some of the big retailers. So, you know, you're not really going over in Australia with Coles or Woolies. Uh, in the UK, it will be Tesco and Sainsbury's in the US, Target and Walmart. You're, you're more going for organic stores or health food stores. Um, why did you make that decision? Uh, it's it, it, a number of different reasons based on, on past experience as well. I, I've had some major contracts where I've had other businesses before and I've dealt with, with uh, major, major players like um, airports and, and big chains. And, you know, you're sort of a, a mono or a dual economy and you're sort of held at their, uh, their ransom. Um, I've got over 2,500 great, amazing retailers just in Australia alone who promote the brand, who, who work with me. Um, and, you know what? I, if, I, if, if for whatever the reason I, I lose one, I am still continuing. Whether uh, if I was with a chain that had seven hundred odd stores and they decided to give me the flick, I, I'll have to go back and look at so many staff in the eyes and tell them that I've got no, no more work for them. So, so a number of different reasons. It was a combination, and then plus I, you know, value what I produce, and um, I didn't want to be waiting at the end of the month for my payment, and then I've noticed that all these rebates have been taken off for stuff I didn't even. Was never even discussed or was aware of, <laughs> which has been known to have, to have happened in the past with the, some of the majors. Um, so yeah, so look, you know, we, we've I've spoken to to I mean, and then you look at the majors, and we, you know, our, our model here in Australia is is a lot more. So, you know, most of the grocery market's taken up by by two majors. Um, you know, Aldi is sort of obviously just shaken up the market a little bit. I, I have had conversations with the director of purchasing and they've got a great model in the sense that they are a family business i think the the latest uh interview i read that they're going completely gmo so they've got some some ethics there but um it's still not a space that i want to play with so but you know never say never but uh definitely for the next few years it's not on the program yeah, yeah, that's no, an interesting one. I was just curious because you know you've got people like in the US, you've got Josh Tetrick with Hampton Creek, yeah. who who is going in with Walmart yeah. and Target to make those products accessible. Um, so it's just it's, it's good to have those different models, I guess. Like you say, you're playing in a particular market um, to get your products out there. So on that, you've talked about you know the fantastic. You've got all these retailers, like you say, in Australia alone, in the UK, um, you're branching out even more into the US and other countries. You've had a very sharp growth. I mean, a very quick growth within. Um, for three years. So can you say something a little bit about how you've kind of made that happen? You know, because I think I read that you you filled and invoiced your very first partner order and now, you know, you've got a team of 65 people and you've got all these stockists. Can you give us a little a little breakdown of how you've made that happen? Yeah, look, um, we're in actually 24 countries in a short period of time and we're about 80 staff now. Um, it's a clear strategy and it's like, um, also, it's, it's 20 years in the making I've been employed for a while so sort of you understand um, the market a little bit and you understand what to do and what not to do and and when I began I did start with uh, you know 
fulfilling 20 odd customers on my own delivering and, and packaging and wrapping and making um invoicing um on the back of a vespa in melbourne um about 22 customers and then i grew to capacity but i just sort of ironed out everything that i sort of needed to as a, as a business and understand it and then um i went state um the month later and then i went national within two months so it was a clear strategy of, of how i wanted to capture the market i um I saw a sort of a need out there and um, I aligned myself with some great partners um, who were very suitable for for the beginning of, of, of the launch of Panachocolate. So it was a good transition. So we went from, you know, to a couple of hundred stores within a, within a couple of months that, that stocked the brand. Um, and then from then, we just kept on growing with a clear strategy, clear marketing and, and uh, playing in the right spaces of where we exhibited and, and uh, how we grew the brand. Um, so, yeah, look... Um, it has been quick, but it's still been quite organic and still been very manageable. Um, as we bring on stores, um, we, we, we're managing the growth. Um, the team has gotten bigger, and that poses a few different challenges in itself. I mean, I, I think I'm the one that's got the most challenges. It was me, um, not last year, the year before, I found it very challenging in letting go. It's sort of we've got a team now, we've got a HR department, we've got a marketing department, we've got sales managers and you know being across in, in small business most of my working life i've always been across everything so uh, that's what i found the most challenging if anything and you know, not the growth to manage it's just letting go and you know you've got amazing people with amazing um thoughts and ideas um but you know they're not my ideas you know <laughs> but uh yeah you know, so it's it's really been exciting and uh you know it's really and last year we really laid some strong foundations even though it was our third or fourth year we really laid some strong foundations to platform us in the next, uh, for the next three or four years as well. And um, we're in the US only in a couple of novelty stores. Our biggest focus at the moment is Europe. Um, we've got an office in London. Um, and um, so we'll start manufacturing hopefully towards the end of this year or early next year at the latest. Um, at the moment, we're servicing all of Europe out of Australia. Um, and then it's start to look at the US market next year. Um, we've got a great couple of, you know, novelty or great little stockers in 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 LA and New York um but nothing sort of major at the moment yeah what advice would you give partner to because you know obviously there are small like you say you've been a small business owner yourself a lot of small business owners now and they're kind of treading water in some ways because they're trying to do everything Mm. they're trying to do so much what advice would you give to those particularly those that have got products who want to get their their products whether it's food or, or other into retail outlets yeah I mean um have a clear strategy for starters. I mean, have a clear strategy of, of the direction that you want to take and hold it. Don't sell any of your company or too much of your company too early in the piece before it's really realized its value. Um, I still own all of my companies, so I'm quite blessed, but there's some opportunities for me to let go percentages of, of the company at the beginning, which obviously now it's worth probably 10 times that. Um, and um, yes, stay true to, to your values and um, they will pay off. I do find they always pay off and, and do the right thing and it always comes back. Um, and don't be scared to, to, to hire people earlier on. Um, and sometimes it feels like you can't afford them, but what they bring to the table and how it grows um it's uh yeah it's 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 priceless that's a really good point actually because i was going to ask you because you you say you've got a really fantastic team you mentioned you've got about 80 staff now how do you go about finding and keeping experienced motivated passionate staff oh look you tend to attract what what sort of you're looking for most times um you know if you get 90 percent of it the hiring right um i think you're generally on track um, you know, we're in a, we're in a space where, you know, most, uh, you know, we've, we've had to sort of 
go out looking for some roles, but, but most of them have been recommended. Um, so we're in a good space as a company because of what we, we believe and how we practice, but a lot of them uh, are sort of referred within, and, and that's that's already there nearly some most times. Um, and, yeah, just, just working with people and understanding their strengths and weaknesses and working with that. Fantastic. And what about in terms of expert help? What kind of expert help have you used over the years? So I'm thinking in terms of hiring others for business coaching, marketing, yeah, publicity, yeah. that kind of thing, and how useful that's been. Yeah. How we were, can I get with my response here? Look, I always believe in mentors and, and, and people. And like, um, you know, I, I came out, um, I come from a European background where, where money wasn't very plentiful at home. Um, so there was a lot of programming that I had to break down. So, so it started sort of when I sort of came out of my 30s and I sort of found myself I'd worked really hard and achieved um, some financial success, but um, not, not much self-fulfillment. And I started asking questions and breaking down. And I've always looked up to mentors, but I've never sort of really, you know, I always, yeah, just, I, I definitely always look up to mentors and, and look, work with mentors. And then the first one, when I came out of my 30s, um, I've had different mentors, more business mentors in my 20s. Um, I, I started looking at, I um, started chatting with a guy with just practicing NLP. And uh, he just really broke down some stuff that uh, sort of been programmed and I had led to believe and, you know, just understanding and peeling back the layers for me. And then from that, I went to sound therapists, to, to shamans, to, to, to white wheat, to lots of all different people. And, and now I've got the, a, a great um, public speaker who's, 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 who's quite young, but he's been there and uh, he's just so knowledgeable and he's bringing so much to the table for me. So, yeah, I've, I've gone and I've, I've even had a, a, a lady who was just, one of the smartest women I've ever met and uh, she had taken a couple um, of all things, complete opposite to what I believe in, but a pharmaceutical company from national to global. But, um, you know, she'd sort of had transitioned herself out of that space. But what she brought to the table as in knowledge was just out of this world, especially when it came to sales because I wasn't very sales orientated. Um, I'm just a passionate foodie and a passionate person who loves do what he does um so yeah so it, it definitely always always have mentors and always have great people to draw on and and, and different people because special people specialize in different areas yeah no, that's really really good advice actually um so now there's a lot more options available now if we look say for example at vegan products um you know and particularly vegan chocolate i remember when i went vegan 20 years ago and i was living in the uk you know plamel was my go-to yeah. because it was pretty much the only one that was kind of tasted like you know real chocolate so obviously now you know 20 years later there, there's a lot more about vegan chocolate yeah. around so how do you go about standing out not only within from non-vegan businesses but also within the vegan business yeah. arena and maintaining Customers. Firstly, I want to say uh, it's adm admirable that uh, you've been vegan for 20 years. I think that's amazing <laughs> because I've been vegan for about four years only. I was vegetarian for a couple of years before that, but I've just seen the change from from four years ago to now. The product availability is just astronomical. The, the, every day there's there's more and more products available, that, and you know, even just go to your local cafe now. And, and most good cafes will have at least one good vegan option meal on the. It's not. A, it's no longer just sides, you know, of sides of mushrooms and and spinach. You know, it's actually <laughs> a plant, which is which is which, which is unbelievable. But uh, yeah, so it's definitely changing, and there's definitely a lot more available. So how do you go about standing out within that space so that people keep coming back to your brand, Parna? Uh, lots of different strategies. I mean, you know, we, 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 we're always uh, looking at marketing. We're always connecting. We're always in the, the right – to try to connect the right trade shows. Um, 
editorials, um, making the right noise. You know, I'm not sure if you're aware. Recently, we did what we believe is another world first. We, I believe I opened the, one of the world's first standalone raw vegan dessert stores um, in August 2013. Um, and uh, last week, we announced... Uh, a sports stadium um, knocked out one of your traditional chocolates, conventional chocolates. Yes, I and, read about that. Um, yeah. yeah, amazing. Yeah, and um, you know we were playing in some really you know in a, in a wider audience space um, and introducing the chocolate. And uh, you know it's good to to hear sort of maybe your traditional football crowd talking about the chocolate and some of the reporters are saying, oh, you know this tree hugging chocolate, and then they're tasting it. So it's actually not bad, you know. So, so so you know it's good to good to see the response. So you know we, we just obviously always chasing um, you know innovative spaces and, and playing in, in and partnering up with with amazing um, businesses I mean Eddie had uh, management was just a, a brand that actually approached us but was oh, so wow. so behind us um, and so behind that change that it was just you know, it was just a no-brainer for, for us. It was just, yeah, we, we've got to do this. And, you know, it's, it might be a little bit ahead of its time and it might take a little more time. We won't sell huge numbers to begin with. But, uh, you know, we can slowly transition people and, you know, bring the bring an option to them where they, they are aware that you can have a great chocolate that doesn't have dairy in it. It's a dairy-free um no, no beings have to sacrifice its life in any capacity to to, yeah. to be in the, in the product. Um, you know, we're happy. We're we're happy. So, but in general, we're always looking for new spaces, and we're trying to be a leader in, in what we create. We know we we like to take um, everyone in this sort of raw, organic, vegan space uh, on the journey together. So, the the more noise we all make, and the more um, information we put out there, and, and play in some great spaces, uh, we really start to carve out the market, and uh, we all get great exposure. Absolutely. And we've seen some, as you probably know, some really exciting um, developments happening in the US with the formation of the Plant-Based Foods Association, yes. which is pretty cool. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about so-called competition, because, you know, a lot of marketing gurus particularly say nowadays businesses should actually stop thinking about having competitors and instead embrace them as collaborators and, you know, yeah. potentially do joint ventures with. What are your thoughts oh, on that? Oh, 100%. I mean, I... I stand by that 100%. Um, you know, if we, even if we look at where we're playing, uh, I touched on it earlier, we're in over 2,500 retail outlets in Australia. Um, you know, that market's growing, the organic and the health food space market is growing, but probably not, not near enough to sustain us. Um, all of us within that space. So we, we have to grow outside of that. Um, so we have to work together to educate and bring that information to the wider audience so they all can come in there and buy it so we can support, help grow it. And that's where the decision was made even with Etihad. But, you know, we're, we're at the moment we've got um, negotiating Japan, for example, and there's a there's a strong brand in Europe, which uh, which is for, unfortunate. I know all and pretty much I've got a great relationship with all the raw, the bigger raw chocolate companies, both in Europe and in Australia. And, you know, they need to take two brands to, to sort of, give a, a wider option, but to help support grow that category and that market. So, so we're always looking at aligning ourselves with other raw chocolate companies and organic chocolate companies, vegan, of course, um, that, that that play in that space because, yeah, it, single-handedly, we, we can all give it a go, but it's a lot easier when two of us are doing it or three of us. 
Oh, I really love that. I think that, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, now, just on the term, the use of the word vegan in, in your marketing materials um, and the prominence of it, two schools of thought. One, it's limiting, it can scare some people away, or two, it's clever niche marketing. And Everybody's got different views yeah. on this, so I love to ask everyone this <laughs> question. What are your thoughts on it? And, and explain your choice of how you use the word in your marketing or not and why. It's changed. It's changed. If I go back oh. four years ago, you, we wouldn't use the word vegan. It would it would pull, it would isolate some people for sure. Now it seems to be a bit more accepted, a bit more uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, I suppose um, what's the word um, perceived as, as healthier uh, and better options. So um, you know, like we said with with Eddie had for example, we we do mention the word vegan, but we're playing more of that dairy free space word. Um, yep. and, and allow people to transition it. But, uh, you know, I've had instances where four years ago we were at a, a good food and wine show, believe it or not, and, we, you know, one of the staff said, oh, it's, it's raw, handmade, vegan, and someone, as they were about to taste it, they put their hand up, opened up their hand, said, oh, not for me. Um, uh-huh. So we've had that, um, but now it just it seems to be more accepted and it is not as a, a taboo word anymore or a, a tree-hugging, as uh, one of the football reporters said the other day, <laughs> word. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's good to hear. Now you've got a pretty amazing social media platform, um, in uh, you know, in terms of your followers and numbers. What platforms are you most active on, and what have you found to be most successful in terms of raising your brand awareness and/or generating leads and sales? Yeah. Look, I mean, obviously, it's, it's it's a new era. It's a new marketing era. Um, we're all sort of understanding from. You know, moving on from the traditional methods, um, and social media has been one of those, and uh, Instagram's been been a, a huge platform for us. Um, you know, when when I'm all over the world, and I could be doing a trade show in, in Dubai a couple of years ago, um, or, or, or Prague, and, and people say, "Oh, I would follow you on Instagram or on Facebook," and the power of that, the reach that it has, is, is astronomical. So, uh, I definitely think they're great platforms, and they do reach. A, 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 a wider audience and a global audience um, and it enables small businesses or medium-sized businesses to have a, a big reach without the, the big big dollars that are generally required or, or, or needed to, to sort of reach that sort of market. And I think the Instagram really is, is big in Australia, not as big in the UK, for example, and, and some European countries, whereas Facebook is, is bigger there and in the US, I think Twitter. So each market sort of plays in different platforms. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely um, recommend social media. Invest. Do you find it's you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do you find do you find it useful because you've also like me, you've also got your personal profile and you've got your brand profile. Yes. Do you find that it's useful to have both because people often you know people say oh they prefer to hear from people or you know the the front person uh, rather than simply a brand in itself. So do you deliberately have a personal profile say on Facebook as well to sort of help? Raise the profile of Parna. I just started my Facebook only less than a year ago, I think it was. So I was sort of, I'm not very, um, I was supposed to savvy in that area. Um, so I've just started playing around with it. Um, so, but I always felt that I kept them separate. Um, I, I do want to build my own profile up a little bit, of course, as a business person. Um, especially as I grow some of my interest in some other vegan businesses, but, um, I, I, Sort of wanted to keep Pana Chocolate uh, separate from me. Occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll put my um, my face on there, whether it was when at an event or something. That's sort of a big a big win. Um, but that doesn't get too many likes anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so we're coming towards the, the end now. So for those people who are listening who are aspiring to owning a vegan-run business, what, in your opinion, are the key things they need to take into account before making the jump from employment to self-employed or employer? Um, Jesus, there's so many. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one that always is just jump in and do it. Um, have the passion. Um, don't treat it like work. Treat it, you know, it, it, it's the passion has to be there, and uh, it, it becomes so much easier. Um, clear clear direction is is always important, and uh, a clear strategy on, on who you where you, which spaces you want to play in. Um, don't try to uh, sort of accommodate everyone. And really early on in the piece, for example, I had distributed it says over a 45 gram bar. You've got to make me a 100 gram bar. You're going to make me a 15 gram bar. You just can't dilute your business. You've got to just stick to, to one, get that right, and then look at other areas. But, uh, yeah, clear strategy is the most important. Um, partner up or, or, or really get advice from people that have played in that space. It could, it could save you. I mean, it's always good to, to jump in and learn for yourself, but it could save you a lot of money at the beginning as well um, when money's not probably as plentiful. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, just uh, stay true and, and ethical. Um, that always prevails, in my opinion. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned about the money because obviously every business, even an online only one, obviously has some startup costs. Yes. So I'm just curious, what were some of the methods you used to get started, if you're comfortable with sharing that? And what have you found or what would you recommend that works well, you know, whether it's investors, yeah. loans, grants, crowdfunding? Look, I, Pan & Chocolate was the first business that I, I, I flipped from what I'd done previously. And I've many cafes and different types of catering businesses and all that in the past. Um, and I would always build them up from nothing. I would, you know, I would be the last one that I'd pay myself. I would um, look at paying everything else and and um, building a business and then growing it internally. And sometimes I'd find myself, you know, two years before I would earn a salary in some businesses. But sure, the business value had grown, but I hadn't sort of really rewarded myself. And and with Pan and Chocolate, I, I did completely different. I actually put in a large chunk of money because I'd built up my finances um, from previous uh, operations and I put it and I paid myself a wage. I didn't pay myself a, a big wage, but I paid myself a nominal wage. So even when it was in development stage, I felt guilty if I didn't, I was an employee. I always treat myself as an employee. So I, I had to, I had to do the hours and, and I felt that that way I was able to accelerate and, uh, and, and go forward um, a lot faster as well and, and stay motivated. And I've known one week that I have not, not received a salary with Pan & Chocolate in all its years. So, so from the beginning, I was fortunate enough where I've been able to take out the money that I invested in it back out. But, you know, it, it was just something that I did completely different. Mm, mm. For sure, for sure. I mean, I noticed you, you said earlier you were quite proud of the fact you still own 100% of Parna. So is, what are your thoughts on in, uh, getting investors involved? Um, yeah, look, you, you do hit a point uh, that you, you always contemplate it. And at the moment, looking at the US market, it's something that I'm contemplating whether I bring in a partner for the North American arm of the company. Um, it's, yeah, you've got to find that. I think you know, you've got to be comfortable with who you work with. Um, meet with them once, twice, three, four times. Make sure the energy's right. Um, their values stack up with yours. Um, if you've got a clear direction that you still have control over that direction, that it doesn't sort of become, you know, a typical other business. If you sort of want to work outside the, the textbook uh, business model that we've all been taught. So yeah, I, I think that's really important just to make sure you find the right partner. 
Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that some people I've interviewed have just said, you know, to choose what's kind of right for you at the time. So some people actually have some savings that they've saved while being employed before they then jump into their business. Um, other people have gone with crowdfunding or commercial yes. loans. So, yeah. Um, so, all right. So our final um, questions are around mindset. And we've touched a little bit on this already because I know you mentioned NLP, which I've done as well. Um, many business owners say that running and owning a business, it's the fastest and most effective form of personal development because it kind of forces you to get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> many different hats. <laughs> what qualities do you believe are essential to staying the course and running a successful vegan business? Um, well, I suppose... I'd go right back and I'd uh, know who you are, understand who you are, what your values are, and uh, you know, being comfortable with yourself. Because once you're comfortable with yourself, I think you can radiate that and uh, steer uh, steer a team or coach a team in the right direction. Um, so I'd probably say that. Mm-hmm, for sure. And it's interesting because I, I ask a few people this and obviously they come up with often resilience is quite a, mm-hmm. a, a popular one that, that comes up. But, yeah, it's a really good point. And I think probably related to that is ish, like knowing who you are and, and perhaps also recognizing and acknowledging your own self-worth, yes. um, which I find some vegan business owners, particularly if they come from an activist background or a creative background, um, they have a little bit of um, issues with and, and need to do some work. And I know I certainly did. I had a heap of stuff to do around yeah. money and business. Yeah, <laughs> I was still at the money issue myself. You know, I come from sort of, you know, where money wasn't, you know, rich people were there and we're here. So I had to break exactly. down all those poverty lines and <laughs> just yeah. changing the DNA. <laughs> Exactly. So what um, what sort of strategies or techniques do you use or have you used to ensure that you've got this strong and, and, and mental and emotional well-being as a business owner? So it could be meditation, coaching, self-help, sport of any kind. What what, what do you do? Yeah, well, I'm, to... I'm a big big believer in, in exercise and, and keeping <laughs> keeping fit and, and lean and, uh, you know, <clears throat> not overindulging. And, and look, I mean, nourishing the soul, um, both with love and, and, and food, is, is so important. Important. I think uh, we really got to you know, treasure ourselves and, and, and our bodies. And so we are what we eat. I know it's very cliche and, and let food be thy medicine are some of the things that I always use because, you know, that then keeps us, keeps us balanced and true and clear thinking. And, you know, nutrition or, or sustaining the body, it's just not fuel. It's fuel for the brain. It's fuel for staying motivated. So we really need you know, I, I base everything on food. I think food's the most important thing for me. And, uh, mm. you know, and, and then exercise is keeping active. I mean, you know, I travel a lot and it, it's hard to keep it up sometimes. I shouldn't use that word. I don't like using the word hard. I just did. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, what I do, I throw in a skipping rope in, in the suitcase. If I can in a hotel room, I might just do some skipping. Or I ensure that where I stay is next to at least a yoga center so I can go and do a couple of yoga classes. Um, you know, I have to be realistic. I used to take the whole gym gear and running gear and, and never used to do any of that. So now I sort of, sort of got to play with what I can and, and what, is it can be achievable and but I, I really believe in that and like I'm you know, I try to ride to work whenever I can I go to the gym whenever I can I'll do yoga whenever I can so you know at least four or five times a week I'll, I'll do something quite active for an hour or two um, and it just and it helps me sort of stay nourished and, and clean and, and I just I don't know how you don't want to feel that way um, so I'm a strong believer in that so 
Um, yeah, no, it's really good advice and lovely that, you, of course, you've created this amazing chocolate that is also super healthy. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> and a final question, Barna, then what have been the key lessons that you've learned through running your business? So those can be personal things you've learned about yourself or professional or both. Um, you never stop learning. Um, you never stop learning. And, uh, you know, um, just key learnings. Um I, I suppose I, I've, I've said this one a, a few times, and I, I was—you you go in with the intention, and and um, one of one of the one of the values that I that I brought to the to the company immediately, and all what I wanted to to, to to stick to was I wanted to to have the same team around me from when I started. Ten years, we can be sharing the story and be sharing experiences. Um, and so potentially, I've, I've promoted people into roles which potentially were never going to work for them um and and that's i suppose we went through that a couple of years ago where promoted people that weren't suitable for for key roles that didn't have the experience or all the support from me um because we were so sort of growing and being everywhere um that I, I probably wouldn't do again i'd prefer to say hey um look what do you you know like what can we do because it's just the role's no longer required rather than saying, okay, you know, that, that, that would be a great role for you and building them up and then realising that it's sort of only built them up to fail in some ways. Right. That's a really good point. I really appreciate you being honest and sharing that because that's the kind of goal that I think is really important for, for people running their businesses. Mm. So that, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you for your time. I, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you uh, a few months ago. But, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, on which a panel, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, no, I look forward to catching up with you again at some point somewhere along the journey. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Pana. Thank you. So that was Pana Barbunis from Pana Chocolate. You can find out more at panachocolate.com. And you can find that link on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Vegetarian and vegan meals and meal centres are increasing in popularity in Germany, traditionally a meat-centric country. New research from Mintel reveals the number of meals and meal centres with vegetarian labels increased more than sevenfold, 633% in Germany, between 2011 and 2015, while the number of vegan-labelled meals and meal centres has grown more than 20-fold since 2011. Mintel says this is a result of vegetarian claims appearing on 12% of all meal and meal centre launches in Germany in 2015, up from only 2% in 2011. Similarly, vegan claims in this category have also increased sharply from just 1% of all meal and meal centres launches in 2011 to 9% in 2015. Katia Wittem, senior food and drink analyst at Mintel, said meat substitutes are increasingly spreading across various segments of the German meals and meal centres category, from prepared meals to pizzas and salads, recreating meat-based recipes. The growing use of plant-based meat substitutes in meal and meal centres highlights how foods that were once considered as inferior alternatives to non-vegetarian and non-vegan options are now becoming legitimate contenders for the attention of everyday consumers. Fantastic. Now, unsurprisingly, health-conscious millennials are the biggest forces behind the rise of meat alternatives in Germany. 
Compared to consumers overall, twice as many Germans aged 16 to 24 define themselves as vegetarians, that's 16%, and almost one in three, 31%, say that they're incorporating more vegetarian foods into their diets compared to a year ago. Animal welfare is cited in the research by 3 in 10, that's 30% of Germans, as a reason why they choose meat alternatives, with the number rising to almost 2 in 5, that's 39%, of 16 to 24-year-olds. Meanwhile, more than 1 in 5, 22%, name environmental concerns as the reason they look to meat alternatives. So this is really good news. I remember being in Berlin back in the early 90s for a holiday when I was still just vegetarian and it was hard even then to find something suitable to eat. So the fact that such a traditionally meat-based culture is shifting more towards alternatives is cause for celebration. Australia is the third fastest growing vegan market in the world, behind the United Arab Emirates and China, reports the Sydney Morning Herald. Citing research by Euromonitor International, it claims Australia's packaged vegan food market is currently worth almost $136 million, set to reach $215 million by 2020. Ava Hudson, Head of Health and Wellness at Euromonitor International, is quoted as saying an increasing number of companies are expanding their consumer appeal by staying away from animal ingredients whenever possible. The rising demand and trend for vegetarian and vegan proteins indicates where the market is moving right now. So that certainly backs up what I saw recently when I went to a natural products trade expo in Sydney recently. There were so many vendors who had made their products vegan and they weren't shy in advertising this on their banners and their marketing material. Currently, the biggest vegan food labelling market is the US at $1.75 billion, followed by Germany, $614 million, Britain, $507 million and Australia. In Australia, the largest product sector for vegan labelling is dairy-type products, worth $83.7 million, followed by sauces, dressings and condiments, $26.3 million, biscuits and snack bars at $12.5 million, confectionery, $6.9 million, breakfast cereals, $5.9 million, and spreads, $1.1 million. Alternative milk has experienced the strongest growth in recent years, driven by a strong shift towards almond milk and away from grain-based milk such as soy. Vegan donuts and jackfruit are among the search terms described as rising stars by the latest Google Trends Data 2016 US report. Compiled from data collected from January 2014 to February 2016, it identified that users are increasingly searching for vegan foods such as donuts, cauliflower, turmeric, sourdough bread and jackfruit, reports Veg News. Rather pleasingly, bacon cupcakes and bacon cinnamon rolls, ew, were named sustained decliners, with searches steadily decreasing over the past years, indicating that these trends are fading. Good! (laughs) In more good news, searches for vegan cheese were up 80%, vegan mac and cheese were up by 69%, vegan chocolate up 86%, of course, (laughs) and 
and vegan ice cream up by 109%. Now, you may recall in a previous episode of Vegan Business Talk, I reported that Eric Schmidt, chair of Google's parent company Alphabet, predicted plant-based food development to be the most important tech trend of the future, and particularly 2016. And this latest report certainly bears that out. Now, this next story made me smile. Leading restaurants and caterers in the UK have seriously underestimated the demand for vegan recipes. A report on the VegFest Express blog by health pioneer Tony Bishop Weston reveals that Hampshire Zizis launched their new vegan pizza with 7 kilograms of vegan cheese as backup, but it sold out almost immediately and they now get through over 14 kilograms of vegan cheese every week. Also, the new veggie pret store from Pret-a-Manger in Soho, London was so busy it ran out of ingredients. Pret Food Director Caroline Cromar said staff had to go on a scavenger hunt of nearby Pret stores to keep up with demand. Bishop Weston's report quotes Sandy Collier, head of food and responsible for new openings, said she had never seen a Pret store so busy. The company was expecting Veggie Pret to be less busy than a store offering meat, but it turned out to be the opposite. Veggie Pret got 50% more customers than on a normal day at a regular Pret store. Baguettes were the most popular items, beating salads, while vegan items flew out the door. The new vegan dairy-free chocolate pot was top of the list and sold out, with the chocolate and almond protein shake coming in a close second. So this is wonderful news. Let's hope these outlets continue to be so popular that they turn all their stores fully vegan. Finally, I'd like to draw your attention to the latest article on the Vegan Business Media blog. Written by copywriter Kelly Myers, it's about how SEO, that's search engine optimization, can help your vegan business. Now, I don't know about you, but SEO for me conjures up dodgy companies calling or email, promising to get your website on the front page of Google. Or maybe for you, it's a vague tech term that you don't want to get involved with. Or maybe you've even heard, well, actually, SEO is dead and you don't need to bother with it. Kelly sets the record straight, explaining in layperson's language what SEO is, why it's important for you as a vegan business owner, and some tips on how to make it work for you. You can read it by heading over to veganbusinessmedia.com. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now. 